0: All right, everyone. Hi. Welcome to OK. So dot dot dot. This is the Internet's finest podcast um, ending in dot dot dot. Uh, My name is Jeff Waladitz. I'll be your guide through whatever it is that we're doing here. uh, Top to bottom. Um, what we'll be doing is a very, very interesting podcast of some kind. Um, I will be talking for quite a bit. I will always be talking with one other person. I've got one other person across from me now who i will introduce shortly. Um, he's champing at the bit because we actually already did a take of this. So we should be really, really solid when we get to go. But let's talk a little bit about what it is that we're going to do here. We're going to have, um, as I said, one person across from me from some facet of the advertising industry, whether they're a media buyer or a media planner, or they work in tech, or they work on the publisher side doing sales or operations or management of some kind. Um, we'll get someone in here that's super interesting. Um, and we're going to talk through the industry. We're going to talk through pop culture. We're going to talk through sports. We're going to talk through the things that are, that are interesting to me, whether they're interesting or not to everybody else who may or may not be listening. Um, so now that we've sort of squared this away, um, let's introduce our guest sitting across from me here, live from Minneapolis, Minnesota, Nick Jazarian. Um, Nick and I go way back. We've known each other for over 20 years. We went to college together. Uh, we managed a website together, Yankee Pot Roast. We wrote a book together. Um, and now he's relocated here to Minneapolis and, um, I came by to have a conversation with him. So let's get it started. Hey, Nick.
1: Hey, Jeff. Hey, crew.
0: (laughs) How's it going, man?
1: Good.
0: All right. So let's talk a little bit. Um, we'll open this with um, just this section I call the three wares. Um, so let's take a minute and let's start, um, let's start with that. So three wares, where are you from?
1: So I am, was born in the Bronx, and I grew up in Mayapack in Putnam County, so I am proud to say I'm, I'm a New Yorker. Proud New Yorker. Yeah,
0: proud New Yorker. Everybody from New York is proud, but yeah. everybody seems to want to live other places now. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> tell me, uh, tell us a little bit about Mayapack. What, what was it like growing up there?
1: Just to be clear, too, I lived for a while in Riverdale as well, so depending who you talk to, it's the Bronx or...
0: Bronx. right yeah. or Riverdale right yeah. that's the that Riverdale Avenue I guess yeah. is the dividing line yeah
1: so where am I now
0: is yeah well no uh, let's talk a little bit about Mayapack Let, let's talk all right that. yeah
1: so Mayapack is um so it's a, it's it's a town in uh Putnam County it's about I I think it's about 45 miles 40 miles north of New York City um so we grew up there because my dad had grown up in... Uh, he, he grew up in a one-bedroom apartment in the Bronx with two brothers, so sleeping on a pull-out couch. Um, last stop in the D-train, uh, Norwood area, over by Reservoir Oval, Monterey Hospital, yeah. Pelham Parkway, you know, so on and so forth. So he was obsessed with space, so as soon as he had the opportunity, he um, he moved north. And so at the time, May Pac, in the late 70s, early 80s, was... Dirt roads and horse farms not fully developed you know maybe it, not very populous and uh built around lakes it was sort of like a resort area growing up and uh or i'm sorry in the 40s and 50s and things like that maybe sooner um and so uh yeah so it was a great place to grow up
0: so as soon as he had the chance, he just jetted town.
1: Yeah, it got out. Yeah, it got out of there. Everyone that he worked with, because he worked in hospitals in the Bronx, so everyone that he worked with thought he was crazy for moving that far away because it felt very um, sparse. It was truly country. I remember my grandparents would always come up, "Oh, we're going to the country to visit, you know, Greg and Joe." And so um, it didn't feel like that growing up. Though it felt like the perfect perfect place. Well, that's
0: what's so funny. I mean, it, it was the country quote unquote, but I mean, I, I, you know, I grew up North of the city also, and people called it upstate. I mean, I even slip into that sometimes because I live in the city now and I call it upstate, but it's, I mean, my parents are 35 miles from the city or 30 miles from the city. It's like 35 minutes on the right day. Um, so, but it's like, it feels, that's the thing. It feels secluded. It feels like your own little world that you're growing up in that's so close to this massive city. Right. Um, And so when we went in the city on the weekends, it was always like, wow, this is where I want to move when I grow up. I
1: remember being jealous that my best friend from high school went to UVA. And uh, he, I remember him being able to say he was from New York and people thinking, wow, you're New York. You automatically rounded up to New York City but us going to Binghamton when we would say we were from New York to people who were from Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx and New York City. they say you're not. Yeah, you're when not I was
0: a when I was a freshman, I had an argument with my roommate about what constituted being upstate, and that whole thing was: did the hamburgers at McDonald's have mustard on them or not? Like that was that was the conversation we had. That was the dividing line. DMA
1: Day. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I'm
0: in. Um, so that's cool. And so now here we are, Minneapolis. Talk about a little bit how, about how you got here.
1: Yeah, so we uh, actually, so it's born from New York. So my wife and I um, were living in Riverdale in the Bronx at the time. And we started thinking about trying to buy a house or do something a little bigger. All our friends started moving to different boroughs, which may have been a different state and country for all intents and purposes. And uh, we just didn't see each other that much. And Riverdale is not that fun. <laughs> um, so we started looking for... No offense, footage. Riverdale. Yeah, yeah, no offense, Riverdale. Um, and uh, it was just very difficult for us to live. We thought we were successful people and still could cry poverty in New York. And um, I don't know, I'm very impressed with everybody who who does it there, because I, I do love it and do miss it. But we ended up chasing my wife's job. So um, we, she had an opportunity that she was really excited about down in Atlanta. So um, she was able to, to go down there, and then I found a, a job at a small agency, and Atlanta was a good place for us. We were there for about five or six years, although I will say it took me four years to stop coming home and saying, you know, when's the joke over? When are we moving back? It's, a, it's, a, it's really, a, I'm not sure how to describe it, but it's like pockets of neighborhoods mm-hmm. um, with not a lot around them, so it's difficult to get around, so it felt a little pretty insular in your neighborhood that you were in.
0: So there's like like these little communities, but there's no sense of how they all knit together. Like, you know, it's like in New York, even it's just blocks, right? Like your five blocks is your community. But if you want to walk to the next community, it's a three minute walk.
1: My, my judge for how useful a city is, is if you can drive a car downtown, park it and walk around for at least now three to four hours and not get bored or need need to go back to your car. And I don't think you could do that in Atlanta.
0: Okay, we'll put that down as the Gazarian City Index. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, But then uh, just through people that I had made connections with in my network, I had an opportunity to come up to Minneapolis um, for work. And uh, I I came here in August, in the summer, so be careful, Um, (laughs) and fell in love with the city. It's it's, it's awesome. And uh, we've been here for two and a half years.
0: Awesome. And so now, you know, the third where here is where you work. So you work at Target, you work in marketing. Um, What do you, what do you like about marketing? Like what's interesting to you about marketing?
1: So we, uh, it's interesting. I feel like it's interesting. um, Coco was like this in Atlanta as well that uh, it feels like there's almost like these mini agencies being built within uh, marketing organizations at big companies. And so I'm a media person within the marketing group. So responsible for media strategy. I feel like I have the best of both worlds um, because I, in these companies, media gets you a seat at the table, but once you're there, you're expected to have a a broad enough point of view on business, on Mm. uh, marketing in total, on creative, on how we're going to approach things. And so, um, so I love that because I get to touch a lot of, a lot of different things. Um, But I'm really excited about marketing right now. Um, it's really challenging and it's really hard. Um, but I walk in and I feel fulfilled every time every day when I'm when I'm walking out because the challenges are are real. So there's everything from ad clutter to um, no one's paying attention to trying to talk and work through with our teams about we're designing a lot of television, but how do you design television for a distracted world where no one's paying attention? That's a very different thing than when you're designing for a cinematic experience, which I think most totally. marketers still do. Um, and so there's a lot of exciting challenges there, but the thing I love the most about target right now is, um, as you know, I've had a lot of different bosses throughout my career and, uh, I feel really empowered here to help solve problems for target. Um, and I love that. I I have a lot of faith in the people that, um, hire me and that I'm working with and the people are great. And, uh, so it's, I have a lot of hope for, um, the marketing world because of that because we have great people there's new challenges coming up I love the infusion of data so there's a better balance of, of um, art and science now than there has been in the past um, and uh, I feel like we're getting smarter at being able to inform decisions but I like that there's a little bit of a revolt going on right now I feel like around um, don't forget the magic like have we over revved around data and science um, and don't forget that your content your creative and your experience still needs to be
0: yeah. yeah I always say 80% science 20% art yeah. like how are you how are you making those two things go together but you've yeah. always been a person who sort of enjoyed putting pieces together yeah. to form like the larger picture I remember when we when we used to write together and we would have feedback sessions like that's what it would always be you'd always have really interesting like smart tips about how to kind of pull through a roadblock in your in your narrative or how am I? how am I getting this character from, so I have a character yeah. point A and I need them to get to point C. What are the steps that, yeah. that you need to get between? And this sounds like that it's sort it, of scratches it, that. It.
1: It's great. Yeah. So I, some people don't do well in you know, large corporate America. Um, so I, I, the best advice I can give everyone is if you're ever going to leave a job to run to something, not run away from something. And uh, so I had to stop in between Coke and target where I felt like I fled to go there. And, uh, I realize I do well in those big companies because it's almost like getting dropped off in the middle of a city and you have to figure out your network and how to get things done um, because there's so many people and so many resources. And so I love that because it is, I think I do like to make those connections. And so um, that's the exciting thing about media right now for me too is that creatives are really interested in working closely with the media team. Our brand teams are very closely um, very interested in working closely with media and then now we're seeing like merchants and other leaders like everyone media is at the center of a lot of conversations whether someone's only interested in investment in how we're supporting a brand or someone's interested in what are the nuances of a channel so i can break through and what i'm developing mm-hmm. um so it's great because it allows you to actually it's almost like being a producer now as opposed to just being a, here's my flow chart find me some creative to go fill these holes I've created
0: yeah you're the person who's responsible for making the complete picture which is essentially what producers do in a music studio so I hear so as a um, you know because that's not my thing Um, so as a sort of an employee of Target but not like a an official duly designated representative of the organization I'm asking for sort of opinions here not um, not official company line um, if Target's actually I assume they have the whole city bugged so let's just put that out there Um, what do you think, what do you think the organization's kind of biggest challenge is right now? Like, is it, is it distribution? Is it figuring out how to, how to scale an e-business? Like what, what do you think they're attacking hardest right now? Um, we talked a little bit about it yesterday in terms of the cash infusion they're putting into brick and mortar. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I think that's a good question. I, the thing I really like about Target and i really have a lot of confidence is that They are putting the guests at the center of everything. So like we announced at the beginning of the year, the infusion of money into um, our our company priorities to the street. We, uh, you know, storage was part of that. Um, But it's really around the guests and the experience and making sure that um, we're giving the best possible opportunity for the guests to find the things they want, at the price they want, in the places that they want, Um, helping to elevate experiences, offering new products that others don't, Um, And that is a little bit of the magic of what we have. You know, people constantly talk about Target as, you know, going in for one thing and walking out with other things. And so that like discovery and curation for Target is really important for us. So um, I think we're just, I think we're focused on a lot of, from a marketing perspective, what I can say we're focused on is um, making sure that we're making things easy for our guests to find and discover. Um, You know, I think a lot of marketers got, we can over-design things, um, which make it challenging because guests have to take additional actions versus trying to identify um, natural behaviors and enable those or amplify those or tap into them. Um, so that's that's a lot of what I'm focused on is, you know, when we're looking at things, are, is this easy? Is this, is this adding value? Is it relevant? So it might sound cliche, but I think that's a really big focus for what Target has. But every company has that same approach. It's just that, Um, just like every writer has an approach to a formula for how they're going to go do it, but it's how you show up that is really going to make the difference in building brand love or driving sales or doing those things. So, um, so that's
0: actually, that's actually a perfect segue into, into what I wanted to talk about next, which, which is like the media that we've produced you and I and and Josh, um, who we should get maybe in a, in a three person, one of these, and that might, that one might last two or two or three hours though. Um, so, we ran a website for a really long time. I mean, right now, I guess the website would be, what, like 14 years old or so? Yeah. We probably ran it reasonably well for, let's say, eight or nine yeah. of those years. Um, and had a couple of different shots at, at books and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and this was sort of in the dawn of the internet, man, right? We know now. A hundred percent. And this was like in the dawn of the internet, where actually putting a website up was a challenge. Um, there was no Tumblr, there was no, yeah. I mean, there was Blogger, but Blogger. Was, was hand coding sort of a, HTML, yeah, and
1: JavaScript.
0: Do you remember when we were literally dropping those into pages? I mean, yeah. those are, those are sort of heady times. So what, like, to what extent, um, to what extent do you sort of write for yourself? That's your now? first
1: Squarespace promo opportunity right there. But, That's my,
0: yeah. <laughs> Squarespace, if you're listening, I'm hundred yeah. percent, um, available for purchase. Yeah. Um, so what, what if any writing do you do now on your own? Yeah, um, I mean, is it sort of mostly, is it mostly work focused or do you, it's
1: mostly, I would say work focused with the exception of the rare, you know, outburst of emotion where I just need something. What, what can I do and put, put things down? So, um, I mean, you described it to me once and I use this line all the time. I, I write best when it's cathartic and generally when I'm feeling frustration or pain or anger or, um, just need to get something out something's boiling inside me that's my best writing even if it's comedy like that spurs a lot of it um and I haven't written for earnestly in earnest for a while and part of it is because I'm just I'm happy right now um so uh it is interesting though because I love to write and it feels so good but I'm I don't always have the inspiration for it because I'm happy and I'm enjoying life and so it feels like Writing isn't something, it's something I like to do and want to do, but it's something I have to do. And right now, I just don't have to do it because things are, things are. I enjoy what I'm doing. I'm liking, I'm, I'm in a good spot. So, um, but I do have those moments. So I have a ton of things on my phone. That's what I wish we had when we were starting to is, you know, I do voice notes or um, I just have all these little notes I've started either in Evernote or on, you know, Apple notes and things like that where it's just,
0: I'm the same way. I'm the same way. There are these like virtual scraps of paper that I have all over my life, whether they're on the computer that's in front of me um, or on my phone or or whatever. I go
1: back and look at things sometimes and think, damn, that's good. And, and, you know, so at some point I feel like I'm going to go back and spend some time. um, But after experiencing publishing a book as well, I think, I don't know if I want to make that into my career.
0: That is, um, I would say... I would say that was probably the most exciting thing that ever happened to me and also the most disappointing thing I, that ever happened to me. Yeah, um, so in addition to actually just being handed money to write, which, I mean, I think you- Twice, yeah. Twice, yeah. I think you, Josh, and I were all just like, w- this was always something that we would have- If you told eight-year-old Nick and eight-year-old Jeff yeah. and eight-year-old Josh that like someone was paying us to write something- Um, you know, we would all, we would have all been like, that's the coolest thing ever. It's just something that we always wanted for ourselves. Yeah. Um, And that was, that as an experience was, was super cool. And then to have it, to go through that writing process, which I remember being just a six month, five night a week, hours long, each night process to finishing the book and then having it sort of just be.
1: We were on tables at Barnes Noble and they mattered a
0: lot. Yeah, know? and it was a complete... Borders and all of yeah. like the large RIP, you know, yeah. and all of the large bookstores that were there. Um, and to get people to show up, just because people yeah. went to events at bookstores, particularly yeah. in and around New York. Yeah. Um, and then to have it be just like a completely self-immolating marketing <laughs> effort, um, yeah. that was sort of what hurt, I think, the most. Well, it's
1: interesting because if we had that same opportunity now... Um, it would be, I, we would approach it differently, right? Because I remember they, they sent us out on our own. They gave us two weeks in the front of Barnes and Noble and Borders across the country, and sales were great. And we thought this is it, and then that was it. That was all they invested in us, and then we end up on humor shelf. And who the who shops humor? You know, oh, no one like shops humor. You yeah. get your Calvin and Hobbes you know, anthology yeah. once a year. Maybe Garfield book sixty seven, exactly. Yeah. And that's, uh, but that's it. No one really shops humor, I don't think. And uh, or that was my. I felt like we were doomed. I felt we were more like I don't know anthropology or something different or
0: yeah, or just human behavior. Like yeah. what what I feel like what we did and you know with Yankee Pot Roast, you folks can check it out um dot Assuming the malware that resides on that site Notice, has been yeah. has been swept away. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 directed at you. No Josh. Just, yeah. Um The you know what we did more than anything was was poke a lot of fun at immediate pop culture i feel like Yankee yeah. part was as an entity would would be really interesting today
1: totally i mean and i still think there's an opportunity for us around that so we, we should certainly figure that out um but the world's changed too right we, didn't, we might not have to write anymore it could be a podcast could be something different so the world's changed so drastically but i remember in 2008 i think it was um asking when we had to do our own marketing i didn't know how to, i did i mean i worked in media and advertising agencies for the last eight years at the time and i didn't know what to do when it was my own money um and i also remember reaching out to i think is it mary philip sandy, mm-hmm. sandy and um asking her about what is what should i do what is this like my space like how do i advertise and you know she was giving me some tips and just I
0: remember, I mean, this is when Facebook was new. I, I remember, like, remember we threw like 50 bucks and we got yeah. a bump in yeah. Facebook and users. Yeah, managed but... it
1: daily. It was crazy. And so, uh, or hourly, and uh, for 50 bucks. And um, I wish I knew, I wish I could bring port some of that knowledge back to then. Because um, I feel like we could have made some different progress. But the world changed. It makes, like, everything's so accessible and democratized now. You look at authors now and, its almost like they have the marketing formula down, but they don't always have the content. Um,
0: that's a really, really insightful point, I think.
1: Yeah. So that's the good and the bad of democratizing the ability to, to produce media and content. Um, I was working on something the other day and having a conversation with people where all the all the in advertising and marketing, all the um, content that you'll read will say, that there's more content than ever. You know, there's that stat about 410 scripted originals last year, which if you think about 10 episodes, half an hour to an hour each one, holy cow, how can I catch up with that much good TV? But then I started looking at the flip side of there's more crap than there's ever been as well. Um, And that's across all places, like websites, podcasts, like everything. So weeding through that. So it's exciting, but it's also dating ourselves going back to that time when you'd go to the record store Mm. and if you didn't know what you wanted it was overwhelming you're just flipping through racks and you just don't know because you're looking at tape covers or cd covers and you don't know if this is good or not and so how do you actually sample and tap into and find those things so
0: um We talk a lot about this at Freewheel, like a lot. We spend a lot of time talking about, actually the stat you quoted, right? I I think the number we use is like 455 or something. It's like 455 original, but it's even in the last probably six months, right? Since you read that stat. Um, And we could probably spend an hour talking about this alone. Um, But the, the one side of democratizing content is exactly what you nailed, which is how do you find the interesting voices among everyone's voice? literally if everyone has a platform, which yeah. everyone does through their Facebook feed or their Twitter account yeah. or their Snapchat, right? If they want to get political with that or interesting with that or creative with that. Um, everybody's got a platform. How do you find the things that are interesting? For me, the television content thing is so can be so overwhelming that a lot of times I'll look at something and I'll say, I just can't choose between all these. I'm going to watch something I've already watched, yeah. um, which is a complete waste of my time. But I sort of know the time value spent there that I feel okay yeah. with wasting it um or just using it rather than using it on something I've already done rather than something yeah that I could do
1: yeah and the the content that you watch too isn't always doesn't always demand your full attention either right so um that distracted viewing is a, is a very real thing so I always I use this example all the time so we watched, I forgot which season it was, and people get very angry when I don't, you know, about the specific seasons, but it was, we were watching True Detective, and we watched it in reverse, so we watched that second season that oh, everyone okay. hated first, and thought, this is pretty good, yeah. we didn't have the context of the first season, then we watched the first season. I forgot which episode it was, but it's a slow-ass show, right? It takes so long to develop characters, and so eventually you don't even realize that you reach in your pocket and take out your phone, and my <laughs> wife and I are sitting <laughs> on the couch staring at our phones don't even know what's going on and we heard a gunshot we looked up and you know one of the main characters or whoever it was was on the ground bleeding and we looked at each other it's like what just who what just <laughs> happened <laughs> who got shot were you you weren't paying attention i wasn't paying attention either and so we're watching this quote-unquote opponent viewing show um and still super distracted so imagine what that's like when you're watching one episode in a four-hour block of you know flip or flop or something house Hun- or house hunters or one of those shows and uh and you don't have to pay any attention that's just, that's radio right that's that is, like turning on the ball game in the back and just doing whatever you need to do
0: yeah it's right i mean even when i listen to podcasts i'm also doing something else on my phone um okay. i find that i lose yeah you know 10 minutes of whatever it is that i'm and there's nothing <laughs> at stake there right but like yeah. um so anyway um that's all i like everything about that democratization of content just cuts both ways so hard in ways that we probably didn't predict. In 2003, yeah. when we started the website, um, we were so... Do you remember how committed we were to getting something up every single day to make sure we had something, even if we wrote yeah. it under a pseudonym? I probably wrote 500 or 600 pieces for our yeah. website of stuff. Um, and, yeah. you know, you guys, same thing. So yeah. a lot of what happened to our website was how can we, how do you maintain that level of effort that, and we yeah. never hired anyone else, we never brought an editor on, you know, because we wanted our voice and our vision to be yeah. the whole thing and again, that sort of cuts both ways. So by 2008, we were like, it was like hands in the air, nobody has any time, right, we're all married, we're yeah. thinking about having kids, like that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and, uh, and also I struggle with the, um, I was I was not and I'm not as prolific as you and Josh have been um, and so, and I, I really needed that inspiration versus just being able to write something down. And so that, I've always struggled with that too, because I feel like I have an idea, I have a couple of posts in my mind, and I've started and stopped in 15 to 20 websites over the last 10 years. Yeah. Because I couldn't maintain them, and I can't find this formula that would account for me when I wake up one day and I'm pissed off about something in politics, or if I want to write about the um, movie from the 90s, or I want to talk about marketing. Like, and, uh, and so I struggle with that a little bit. Of it's okay to just put something out there,
0: and that was what made underrated so interesting. Yeah. I think was that it was those short bursts of kind of whatever you wanted to talk about. Sure. Yeah. Um, but we let great be the enemy of, of good quite a yeah. bit with that. Also, that it's was not too late. That was what it yeah. It's never too late. Yeah. Um, speaking of too late, um, let's talk about the Knicks for a couple of minutes before we wind this down. So, okay. you know, again, just going back to the beginning, we both grew up in New York and uh, the New York suburbs. Yeah. Um, we both grew up where you weren't inside playing; you were outside playing all the time. Yeah. And the most natural, easiest thing to do with a hoop in the driveway was just shoot for yeah. hours, um, and that translated into a love of, of basketball as a as a television product, right? As so, a as a rooting interest. Um, and the Knicks, I think sort of when we were in junior high, sort of started on that upward trajectory when they drafted Mark Jackson. Yeah. And those teams started getting good. Um, and then Stu Jackson left and Pat Riley came in. Um, talk a little bit about sort of what the Knicks mean and meant to you as a as a kid, as an adult. Like your yeah. rooting interest in, in the Knicks and, and how disappointed yeah. we all are now and over the last so 20 years. So for
1: me, the, the Knicks, is, they're the thing that I found. No one introduced them to me. I remember um I was home from school one day and it was Martin Luther King Day because we actually got that off. Um and I remember watching the Knicks. They always that's like their thing. They always had a game on Yeah MLK day game and they, on MLK. And I remember watching games super exciting. I don't remember if it was a Trent Tucker game, although I do remember the Trent Tucker rule game. And uh it's like this is amazing. This is so exciting. I remember Patrick Ewing like I just remember, it was like NBA Jam. He's just flying through the air all the time, dunking on people. And uh, it was super exciting. And it was a game that I could play myself. So um, I started getting into the Knicks. And uh, I've I've been there ever since. And I just, I love basketball. I just love it. I love, um, it's just part of, I feel like it's part of New Yorkers' fabric too. Although it's a shame that um, the Knicks... Stinks so bad and for so long and for so long and st john's hasn't been good in a long time too because we also grew up when st john's was great and it was this little queen's school that you know was competing nationally and it represented the city's personality and i just uh so it kills me that the knicks are not good and um i've you know as you get older you drop off interest in other things i just the knicks it's i feel like i'm determined that we have to see this thing through. (laughs) Uh,
0: I mean, among us and among our friends, you've always sort of been the eternal optimist from that perspective. Like I, I love getting (laughs) texts from you about the Knicks and you're like, I can see their ceiling is 40, 45 wins. And I'm always like,
1: if things go well, yeah, not sure
0: about that. I,
1: yeah. And I love Carmelo Anthony. I think he gets a raw deal. I know. I just feel like we've had a lot of really good players over the years that no one knows how to put them together. I'm convinced. I remember there was, I took a presentation skills course need to pick any topic to present to your group and mine was, uh, convincing James Dolan that I would be the best GM he could ever possibly <laughs> hire. I'm still convinced to this day I could have done it, but they, uh, they just, it's, it's, it's really disheartening what's going on <laughs> with the Knicks, um, because people are still paying so much money too. And, um, I've been fortunate to work in a lot of different jobs in New York. Um, so I, was a um, while I, either while I was at an agency or out of work or in between jobs or whatever the case may be. So, um, a shout out to one of our college friends, John McGowan, got me a job as a as a porter one summer in New York City. So, um, within a building, so living. You know, we'd be I travel around the different buildings, but it was um, taking out the garbage. It was mopping floors. It was being a doorman when people had to go have lunch or dinner breaks, things like that. Um, And then it was also I lived in in the Bronx, um, over by uh, um, Reservoir Oval. So, um, like seeing that, I was at Barnes Noble. I worked there for a couple for a couple summers. Seeing that stuff, um, like sports, matter more. those people than the people who are actually going to the games and can afford to pay for those tickets so yeah James Dolan's still running a great profit but the people who love the Knicks it's killing them (laughs) Um, because it does matter I mean I know that it's a struggle of do sports matter find something more meaningful to do with your life but it is a meaningful thing for a lot of people so it kills Jets fans it kills Knicks fans like look at Yankees fans they're as proud as they can possibly be um, and they've had a lot of success, and it like it's a fulfilling part of a lot of people's lives, for better or worse. Yeah, so. no,
0: I mean it's especially in in sort of days like these where you know things generally are uncertain, and we don't have to yeah. go into that. But um, in days like these, sports even matter, even matter more. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, when you're at a Knicks game, it does get it, it gets upsetting because you know it was always interesting to see on TV on MSG when they would flashed this you know the the people that were in the crowd right so you'd yeah. always see Woody Allen and you'd always see Matthew Modine, and you'd always see yeah. like Tom Brokaw who had these seats but you know they were down in the court but when you looked up to the blues um, which was the yeah. you know the very very top ring of, of seats in the, in the garden you always saw people who you knew had had those tickets since since Willis Reed was playing yeah. for the Knicks, or, or you know, even go back further, since Joe Lapchick was playing for the Knicks, like yeah. people who had been playing in in the fifties and sixties, and those people have to pay if they still have their tickets. I mean, I can't imagine yeah. they do, but one hundred and twenty, or one hundred and thirty, or one hundred and fifty dollars a ticket to sit to see in, a
1: twenty-win team or a thirty-win team or
0: from nine hundred miles away when they could just as easily do it at home in front of their TV where yeah. they and, can see the action.
1: And I, I quite, I don't. I quietly watch, like, every minute of every season. Yeah, that's for, for that alone, you should get there. Yeah, I mean, Wendy asks me all the time why, if they're getting blown out by 30 points, you know, why are you watching this? I'm like, I have to. It's not...
0: Hope springs eternal.
1: Right. It's not... Yes, it'll feel so much better if they ever win. Because <laughs> they've gone through this.
0: Totally. So, final question. What Knicks player from history... Do you feel like you most model your own game after? Oh, that's a good question. Um, It can be from your lifetime. It can be from sort of prior.
1: I've got, I mean, my, I would say my game has uh, devolved over time as we get older. But I remember playing with, remember Adam? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, He would always make me play down low. So, and I would, when we would go out and play with his boys on Staten Island or go to the parks or do whatever. And, uh, I, I want to say, I want to say it's Carmelo Anthony, (laughs) although he wasn't there at the time. Um, I would say it was probably, well, first of all, I grew up thinking I was Mark Jackson. Naturally. Um, So I do a lot of no look passes. We kind of all did, Yeah. And, uh, when I was at the height of my, my powers, I would. Hit a lot of people in the face accidentally with the ball because <laughs> they were not expecting the pass. And Mark Jackson does it so, uh, no look passes, things like that. Um, so it's a combination of of him and also I would say Alan Houston because I love to shoot. Um, hit yeah, that.
0: That was the, he was the great mid mid range jumper. Like, yeah, from fifteen to eighteen
1: feet. And he he had range all day, and he was a two guard um couldn't play defense much like me, and also couldn't had, pass he, he had like uh,
0: 50 points two rebounds one assist well like he that was... didn't pass but he <laughs> could pass
1: because he was a point guard at Tennessee um, oh yeah I guess that's he, right and he had a decent handle but uh I just liked him a lot I don't know if there's a because I have to be honest the player that I would say I modeled my game after was Chris Mullen
0: mm-hmm. St. John's yeah St. So, yeah. John's
1: guy with the buzz cut and he was slow and he couldn't jump and uh I thought, I can do all those things. And so, but he could still dribble. It was hard. And he could pass like nobody. Like, he was one of the, he was a great passer. Yeah, he was a a great player. And he made all those little um, plays and just, you know, part of his magic too, I think, was he was as happy for the guy who scored on his team, cheerleading and clapping and all that kind of stuff as anybody. So I loved, Chris Mullen was my guy. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. All right. I think we're done here. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. This was great, um, and I really appreciate you uh, you taking the time fun. out of the day. It was fun. All right, and that's our show for today. If you like what you heard, feel free to follow us on Twitter at podcast ok so. That's podcast ok so out there on Twitter. Uh, thanks again to Nick Jazarian for joining me today, and we'll catch you next time.